Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. The thirty-first talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on April 10, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 10, Translation, Installment 2016, number 2, accompanies this talk. We're going to continue on in Hebrews. We're in chapter 10, 5 through 10, basically 5 through 14 or so uh, in your normal Bible. It'll be paragraphs 50 and 51 in my translation. Therefore, when it comes to the ritualistic system of sacrifices, it says, you do not want a sacrifice and offering, rather you have arranged a body for me. In whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you find no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written concerning me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifice and offering and whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you do not want, nor do you find any pleasure in them, things that are offered in accord with the covenant. Then it says, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order that he might establish the second. By this will, we are sanctified in view of the one-time offering of the body of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, on the one hand, every priest would stand day after day and minister by offering the very same offerings repeatedly, offerings that are never able to take away sins. But this one, on the other hand, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sits at the right hand of God and is eagerly waiting for the time that remains until his enemies are placed as a footstool for his feet. For by the one offering, he for all time made teleos, those who are being sanctified. Okay. At the beginning of that paragraph in 50, he quotes extensively from Psalm 40. So we looked at Psalm 40, spent all of our time last week looking at Psalm 40. Just as a review, Psalm 40 seems to be a description of David's autobiographical experience where he's committed sin and he's in anguish over the condemnation that he feels because of the sin, the impending doom of condemnation that hangs over his head because of his sin. But he describes crying out to God in the midst of his condemnation and guilt, crying out to God, and God delivers him from that sense of doom that he feels. He comes to an awareness that he's going to be met with mercy by God rather than condemnation. And it lifts his spirit and puts a song in his mouth, and he is delighted at the relief that comes from having the condemnation lifted. And then at the end of that first part of the psalm, he describes how in the midst of that experience, he was given some kind of insight whether through direct revelation or whether just his own human intelligence contemplating his situation. But he came to the realization 
that God doesn't want animal sacrifices. God is quite willing to extend mercy to him simply because of his willingness to do the will of God. That's all God is asking for, is a heart that's been opened up to God, receptive to God, eager to know God and love God and honor God and serve God. And because David has come to God and approached God with that kind of heart, he recognizes that God will grant him mercy and he doesn't need to offer the animal sacrifices. That's the part that Paul quotes here in Hebrews. And then the last part of Psalm 40 is Paul describing his prayer to God to save him from the consequences of his sin. Evidently, whatever this sin is, it has put a ball in motion that has led to him later in his life literally being in physical danger. Some revenge on the part of someone, there's some feud that is developed, but somebody out there is out to get him and to harm him, and it seems to be because of David's iniquities, he says, because of his evil. So David's evil has spawned potential danger for him physically later in his life. And so he's crying out to God for deliverance. Well, the part that Paul highlights here in Hebrews is you do not want a sacrifice and offering. Rather, you have arranged a body for me. In whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you find no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written concerning me to do your will, O God. And The connection between those two, as I explained last week, is it's not because you don't want offerings, now I'm going to come and do your will. I rather think the way to understand the psalm is in the midst of being willing to do the will of God and approaching you for mercy, I discovered that that was enough. I discovered that all you wanted was my openness and receptivity to you. You didn't want my stinking meat. That wasn't interesting to you. Okay, now here's the problem. It's quite clear what David means. David has discovered that it was not a necessary condition on receiving mercy from God that he offer up the animal offerings, even though that's precisely what the Mosaic law prescribes and tells him to do. That's what Torah instructs David to do, is when you're in such and such a situation you bring a burnt offering of one kind or another. But David recognizes and has the insight that that's not what God wants. He instructed you to do it, but that's not really what he wants. So David has come to realize that the actual act, the actual ritual of offering up the burnt offerings is not a necessary condition on him receiving mercy. The only condition that he's met in the psalm is this will to do the will of God, this willingness. But he does meet that condition, and he realizes, lo and behold, that's enough. That is what a logician would call a sufficient condition for him receiving the mercy of God. And the animal sacrifices are not a necessary condition for him receiving the mercy of God. Well, okay, we're in the middle of an argument in Hebrews where Paul is arguing that the basis of our receiving mercy from God and the blessing of eternal life, the basis of that is not in animal sacrifices. The basis of that is in the death of Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice that Jesus offered up on our behalf as our true and ultimate high priest. How do you get from 
you don't want animal sacrifices, you just want my heart given over to you and willingness to do your will, to you don't want animal sacrifices, you want the sacrifice of Jesus, your son. So you see the problem? He's using the psalm to support his contention that the animal sacrifices are replaced with the sacrifice and the offering of Jesus' own body, his own person. That's what he's arguing for. He quotes a psalm that doesn't say that. He quotes a psalm that says, you don't require animal sacrifices. It is quite enough that I give you my heart, that my heart and my will be given over to you. So that's the problem we have to solve, is to understand how is Paul thinking about this, that he thinks that Psalm 40 is supporting his argument when his argument is not David's argument in Psalm 40. Well, to understand that, we need to make a distinction here, and I alluded to it last week, but let me make it again. We have to understand that there's a difference between the basis for something and a condition for something. You can put conditions on something that are not the basis for that thing. So let me give you kind of a wild example. I have a son who gets captured by bad guys, right? And I make an offer to the bad guys. I will come and let you take me into custody and make me your captive on three conditions. You release my son and give him freedom. You send my family a large pepperoni pizza and you admit that the Ducks are the best football team. You meet those three conditions, and I'll let you take me into captivity in place of my son. Now, all three are necessary conditions in the way that I have presented the the terms. What I'm saying is all three of those things need to be met, or you can't have me. You can't have me for a captive. I need all three of those things to be met. So each of them is a necessary condition. What would be the basis for me being willing to offer myself to them? That my family gets a pizza? So even though you have three conditions, there's really only one thing that's going to answer the question, why would you be willing to go into captivity yourself so that my son might go free? So that's the basis upon which I would do what I'm doing. But I've laid out three conditions. Not every condition is a basis. Okay. Now, if I'm a really terrible negotiator, if I, if I fail the Donald Trump test and I'm a really terrible negotiator, then I don't say I have these three conditions that must be met, this and this and this. I say this or this or this. Either you set my son free or you send a large pepperoni pizza or you admit that the Ducks are the best football team. Oops. <laughs> That's probably not going to work. Because in that case, each of those is what a logician would call a sufficient condition. Any one of them would be sufficient to get the result, to bring about the result. Me going into captivity, me offering myself for captivity. Okay, well, what's going on here? David is not talking about the basis for divine mercy. He's talking about the condition for divine mercy. What's the necessary, what are necessary conditions for God granting us mercy. Is it a necessary condition for God granting us mercy that we offer up the animal sacrifices that are prescribed in the Mosaic Covenant? Well, I thought so, but I guess not, he discovers in Psalm 40. I guess that's not a necessary condition. God can grant mercy even without that. Okay? 
what condition did get met that was a sufficient condition for God? The fact that he had a will that was willing to do the will of God. That was a sufficient condition for receiving mercy from God. And that's what David discovered in Psalm 40. What is Paul talking about in Hebrews? Paul's argument does not concern the condition for receiving mercy. Paul's argument concerns what's the basis for receiving mercy. Is the basis animal sacrifices or is the basis the offering of Jesus when Jesus offered up his own body as a sacrifice? And his argument is it's not the animal sacrifices, it's the offering up of Jesus' own body. Okay, well, how do we get from condition to basis? Well, we get from condition to basis because there's a certain logical relationship between a basis for something and a condition for something. Namely, if something is the basis for something, it will also, by virtue of the fact that it's the basis for something, necessarily be a necessary condition. If you don't supply the basis for it, you certainly haven't supplied something that's a necessary condition for that thing. So if the basis upon which God is going to grant us mercy has not been put in place, then something that is a necessary condition for you and I receiving mercy has not been put in place, has not been met. Okay? So, doing a little logic here, if a proposition is true, the contrapositive is true, for those of you who are logicians, what that means is if something is not a necessary condition, then it is not a basis. Uh, don't worry if you're, you've got lost. But if something is not a necessary condition for something being true, then it can't possibly be the basis upon which that thing is true. If something is not a necessary condition for God granting mercy, then it can't possibly be the basis for God granting mercy. So what Paul is arguing is what we find in Psalm 40 is that David discovered that animal sacrifices were not a necessary condition for him receiving mercy. Logically, what does that mean? They are not the basis for him receiving mercy, which is exactly the point that Paul is arguing for in Hebrews. David discovered, by implication from Psalm 40, David discovered that it's not the animal sacrifices prescribed by the Mosaic Covenant Those are not the basis upon which God is going to grant us mercy. So what is? It must be something else. And remember, we're in the middle of a long, complex, subtle, sophisticated argument by Paul. He's taken us to Psalm 110. He's taken us to Jeremiah 31. He's given us all kinds of input. And what did he discover in Jeremiah 31? God is going to establish a new covenant. What's new about this covenant? Well, Paul's thinking that what's new about this covenant is that the basis for divine mercy is different in the new covenant than it is in the old covenant. Well, look what Psalm 40 tells us. Animal sacrifices never were the basis for divine mercy. David makes that clear by telling us it's not a necessary condition. He's telling it it's not the basis. So if it's not the basis, then lo and behold, I'm on the right track when I think that the new covenant is going to supply an entirely new and different basis upon which God is going to grant us mercy. So what is that basis? Well, this dude Jesus came along saying, 
I'm going to go to my death. I'm going to die for your sins and the sins of the whole world. And if you believe in me, you will be saved. You will have eternal life. Everything he said was pointing in the direction that I am the basis upon which God is going to grant mercy to you. Not anything else. I and I alone am the basis. So Paul reading this, reading Psalm 40 and Jeremiah 31 and Psalm 110 together in the context of things that Jesus said and Jesus did, he comes to a conclusion that he thinks is incontrovertible. The new basis in the new covenant for us receiving the mercy of God is Jesus' own sacrifice as a propitiatory offering that he offered up as our ultimate and true high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay? Let me pause there for questions. A little thick, so. Does Paul equate the body that David's talking about with the body of Jesus? Yes, I think so. He does. Paul does. Paul does. David doesn't. Right. I don't think. I mean, it's possible that David, what she's referring to, look at the psalm again. You do not want to sacrifice an offering. Rather, you have arranged a body for me. In whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you find no pleasure. So the question is, you have arranged a body for me. What's that all about? I think at the minimum, what David is concluding is, if you don't want animal sacrifices, then whatever it is you do want to be the basis for your granting mercy to me, you're going to have to, you've got that worked out. You've got that figured out. You've got that put in place or will put that in place. But it isn't this. It's not these animal sacrifices. So whatever it is, you'll take care of it. I think at a minimum, that's what David is saying. And I think the reason he would put it the way he does, a body you have arranged for me, is not because he necessarily knows that there will literally be a body given to God that will be the basis for mercy, but because it's whatever the counterpart to these bodies are that you don't want. Whatever it is you do, whatever body, put that in quotes, whatever body you do want, you're going to arrange for it. So I think David's psalm could have been fulfilled if God had had an entirely different way of freeing us from condemnation that didn't involve Jesus dying. He still could have said this, if you understand what I'm saying. He still could have said, a body you've arranged for me. And all, all he would mean by that is, whatever basis for my receiving mercy you have in mind, you've got it worked out. Now, Paul, notice what he does with it. After saying above, sacrifice and offering and whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin you do not want, nor do you find any pleasure in them, things that are offered in accord with the covenant, then it says, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order that he might establish the second. Now, here's the key. By this will, we are sanctified in view of the one-time offering of the body Soma in Greek, exactly the same word that is in the translation of this Psalm 40. We are sanctified in view of the one-time offering of the body of Jesus the Messiah. So I think Paul is explicitly filling in the body that David knew God was going to have to arrange. I'm telling you, that was the body of Jesus the Messiah. While we're there, let me just interrupt your questions with a comment here. Notice he says he takes away the first in order that he might establish the second. What's the first and the second? The first are the animal sacrifices. The second is the will. 
Behold, I come to do your will, O God. He's talking about what David means in Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, he takes away the animal sacrifices, the first, as a necessary condition for receiving the mercy of God. And he replaces it with the second, the willingness to do the will of God, as a necessary condition for forgiveness and mercy. But that's what David's talking about. Paul then acknowledges that that same willingness plays a critical role in our lives as believers in Jesus. Those of us who are being sanctified by this very will, the same will that David is talking about, we are sanctified in view of the one-time offering of the body of Jesus the Messiah. To use the language that I was developing earlier, our will is a condition for our salvation on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice of himself and all that that entails. Oh, okay, so, so you're taking the will in verse 10 as our will. I was taking it as God's will, because he says, I've come to do No, I think it's will. our will. Okay. It's the will that David described as, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. And the will here is his willingness to do the will of God, I believe. So can I just repeat back to you what I think you're saying and then have a question? Sure. So you're saying that David has discovered that the animal sacrifices are not a necessary condition for salvation, and the logic of that means that they can also not be a basis for salvation. He is saying that a broken and contrite heart is a necessary condition. And Paul is saying a broken and contrite heart is still a necessary condition, and the basis of our salvation is Jesus' sacrifice. So that's right? Exactly right. So my question is, in your explanation, you called Jesus' sacrifice a new basis, but am I not right in thinking that you would say that actually all along the plan is that his sacrifice yeah, is Yeah, thank the basis you. That, that's for... good. At the end of the letter, he's going to call Jesus' sacrifice the eternal covenant. Yeah. So it has always been God's plan that the basis for our receiving mercy is Jesus, his role, his intercession, his death. That's always been the basis from before the foundation of the world. What makes it new, and that, that was misleading for me to put it that way, what makes it new is that from the standpoint of people in the time of Jeremiah— where Jeremiah is speaking and says, Behold, after these days, God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The new covenant is simply him making them aware of an entirely new and different way to deal with sin in their life. It used to be you went to the temple and took offerings. According to the new covenant and the new Torah that goes with that, the new instructions that go with that, you would be instructed to do something else with it instead. Instead of taking an animal to the temple, trust in the blood that has already been taken into the eternal abode by Jesus. I think she cleared it up for me with with the same questions. Remember the series you did on what must I do to be saved? Uh, A survey of the preaching in Acts where they just kept saying, you must repent. Okay. And just okay. constantly they hit on that theme, you must repent. Right, right. So repentance is a uh, necessary condition. A necessary condition. But yeah. it won't complete. It's not, the, it's not a sufficient condition. Right, yeah, exactly. And that's critical to see that because otherwise 
we could imagine people being repentant without there ever being Jesus functioning as a high priest, without him dying as a propitiatory offering. And the question is, in this world, in this story, the way God has constructed this story, would God, I I won't say could, but would God forgive people just because they have a broken and contrite heart? And I think the answer to that is no, no. Because no matter how broken and contrite my heart is, I have no standing with God that I can go into his presence and say, would you admit me into your kingdom and grant me life even though I don't deserve it? We could say that, but who am I for him to even listen to? But his beloved son in whom he is well pleased, who has been appointed as, my, as an intercessor between me and God, who has earned the right to be heard through his heroic obedience and his divine godlike love for the rest of us, who is very pleasing to God for all those reasons, he has a standing to appeal to God to be merciful to me, to appeal on my behalf. Now, that's not just in any possible world, but we don't live in any possible world. We live in this world. And in this world that we live in, that's the way God has decided the story is going to go, is that my salvation is going to completely hinge on the role of my advocate. If he wants me, then I'm in. If the advocate doesn't want me and doesn't want to advocate for me, then I'm toast. And that's just how it's going to work. So my, the high priest, therefore, and the intercession of that high priest, that's the basis upon which any of us are going to get eternal life. But there are several different conditions, some of which could contribute to the basis, some of which are completely irrelevant to the basis. In Moses' day, part of the condition was keeping the covenant. So how do you know who God is going to grant mercy to? Look for the people who are keeping the covenant, and you'll see the people that God is going to grant mercy to. But not because their keeping the covenant was the basis for their forgiveness and mercy and salvation. It wasn't. It was just the condition that was relevant to them and their lives in that particular time in history. For us, what's the way that the condition primarily gets stated? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If the condition is believe in Jesus. Is it a necessary condition? Interestingly, no. The necessary condition is what you called repentance. The necessary condition is that I have undergone this transformation of my heart, of my insides, so that instead of being an incurable rebel against God, I have a positive orientation toward God. Well, what happens if that miracle occurs and I have a positive orientation toward God in a context in world history where I don't even know who Moses is, let alone Jesus? Is it a necessary condition that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I wouldn't even know what I was believing (laughs) if I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know enough to do that. But my heart has been turned toward God. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is simply a symptom of something deeper that is the real condition. Yeah, is actually part of the basis upon which God is going to show me mercy. And then this is what he's talking about when he talks about the father's sheep and his voice and his sheep are my sheep. And mm-hmm. it's sort of like the we would not expect God to strike someone with repentance and not save them. Right. It, it seems to be a package right. deal. And that seems to be what Jesus is reassuring people about. You're not going to hear his voice and wander off. Right. You'll be inexorably drawn to the truth. Exactly. Yeah. 
thought I had this all figured out. Now I have a question. Okay. So if a person can meet the necessary condition for salvation, which is the broken and contrite heart, but may not understand on what basis mercy is granted, salvation still happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in fact, we're going to stop Hebrews here in next week, but if we were to go on into Hebrews 11, if we were to go on into chapter 11, he's going to give a long list of people, many of whom had absolutely no clue what the basis of their salvation was, but they were saved anyway on the basis of that heart condition. He's going to frame it in terms of their belief. But one of them is Enoch, and we have absolutely no evidence at all that Enoch knew diddly squat about Jesus. All we know is he walked with God and he was no more. The point being he walked with God and God rewarded him with never seeing death, but simply translating him into some other sphere of existence. Well, on what? Why? Paul is asking there, why? Why was he rewarded? Well, he walked with God, but what exactly did that consist of? What did that mean? What did that look like in the time of when Enoch lived? I mean, he's an old dude. He's before Abraham. He's before all. He's before Noah, isn't he? Yeah, he's before Noah. So what does he know? He doesn't know anything about any of this stuff. But he had repented. His heart was oriented toward God, described as he walked with God. And so the way Paul formulates it is, well, at a minimum, (laughs) what is the bare minimum you have to believe in order for you to be walking with God? You must believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And would that not be true of all persons prior to Jesus who had love of God? Exactly. Yeah. I've probably said this before, but it's critical to understanding this. I grew up thinking that it used to was that you sacrificed animals in the temple, and that's the basis upon which you were saved. But then Jesus came along and changed the rules and changed the basis and changed all that. No, when somebody in the time of Moses took their animal offering into the temple and offered up their offering, they were justified in God's eyes. That is, if they came with a broken and contrite heart, they were justified in God's eyes. But not because of the animal sacrifices, it's because of Jesus. When it counts, however you, I mean, let's make it a metaphorical scenario. I'm not saying this is literal, but we go up to the judgment seat of God and somebody who is second cousin of Moses is being judged by God. How is it that God is going to grant him the blessing of Abraham eternal life? Because Jesus is going to advocate for him. You can imagine the scene. Who are you? <laughs> Thanks. But who are you? He doesn't know anything about Jesus. He has no understanding of how and why and and in what sense he's the basis for his salvation, but he is. As long as God knows that he's the basis for his salvation, it doesn't really matter whether I know it or not. Okay, all right, let's go on. Well, I should point one thing out that I didn't comment on. Notice in my translation, I begin that section. This would be at 10, verse 5. I begin that paragraph. Therefore, when it comes to the ritualistic system of sacrifices, it says, if you have a normal English translation, it's going to say something like, coming into the world or when he comes into the world or something like that? Does it actually have when Christ comes into the world? Okay, because I believe it's a participle if I'm going by memory here, but I, I don't think there is any subject there, Christ or he. When it comes to the ritualistic system, the reason I translate it that way is the, the Greek word that they've translated world is cosmos. 
And I think we've had this conversation before, but it's the Greek word cosmos. Our English translations always translate cosmos as world. They just always do. question is, are they right to always translate it as world? And I, my contention would be no. There are a significant number of places in the epistles where the cosmos that's being talked about is not the cosmos of the universe, of the cosmos. It's not the cosmos of the cosmos of the cosmos. It's a different cosmos. A cosmos, in Greek, is any ordered system. So when something is arranged and put in order and works in some kind of harmonious, law-driven, rule-driven kind of sense, then it's a cosmos. So our cosmos is a cosmos because God has so created the universe that look at the intricate design and functionality of it. It operates according to laws and procedures that are all in sync with one another and are all in harmony with one another. So this is a cosmos rather than a chaos, right? The opposite of cosmos is chaos. Okay, but you could have a city-state, for example, where a lawgiver comes along and imposes laws to create cosmos in the society as opposed to chaos in the society. A woman can take various elements and bring cosmos to her face. They're called cosmetics, right? And remove the chaos and create some kind of cosmos. More often than not, when cosmos is used in the New Testament writings, what they have in mind is, look what God instituted and what God established in the Mosaic Covenant. He came along and he said, when this happens, you do this. And you offer this offering in response to this circumstance. You offer this other offering in response to this other circumstance. And you offer still another offering in response to this different circumstance. And how do you do the offering? Well, you do it exactly this way. And it's, and it's spelled out in some kind of detail. Well, this law-driven, rule-driven system of how you are to express your worship to God is a cosmos. And that's the cosmos that we're talking about here. So look how much sense my paragraph makes as compared to your English translation. Therefore, when it comes to the ritualistic system of sacrifices, that whole phrase is what I'm trying to capture by the word cosmos. When it comes to this cosmos of the system of sacrifices, it says, and now David makes a comment in Psalm 40 that is directly about the role of the cosmos that God instituted in the Mosaic Covenant. And basically what he's saying is, I guess it wasn't necessary, was it? It wasn't the necessary condition for forgiveness. If you translate it, when Christ comes into the world, what on earth does that mean? It makes no sense, unless you can convince me of a way to take it that makes sense. I don't know what it would possibly mean. Okay, so that's paragraph 50. I did also forget, there's one other comment I want to make that goes back two weeks. When we look back at paragraph 49, let me read that again. So this is the paragraph coming into the one we just finished. Now, speaking with reference to the same offerings that they bring perpetually year after year, since the covenant has but a shadow of the good things to come, not the exact same likeness to those events, it is never at any time able to render teleos, those who draw near. Because in that event, would not the bringing of offerings have stopped? since no one would have a consciousness of sins any longer when once the worshipers have been rendered clean. 
Rather, in them is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sins. Okay, two weeks ago, Colin came up afterwards and raised an interesting question that got me started thinking, and I've changed my mind about the way I took that since no one would have a consciousness. Well, would they not have stopped in that event? Would not the bringing of offerings have stopped? There's really two ways we can think about this. One way to think about this is God instituted the offerings and he instituted them as things to be repeated over and over and over again, the Day of Atonement annually and so on and so forth. But if they worked, wouldn't we have just sort of shined God on and said, forget your covenant, I already have your mercy, I'm not going to do what you've asked me to do any longer because I would abandon it because successfully I would have come to a self-awareness that I stand to receive mercy from God. I think that's the way I was kind of tending to take it. But that doesn't make nearly as much sense as what Colin suggested, and that is when God's actually instituting this thing, he instituted it to be done repeatedly, and he instituted it to be done, the Day of Atonement, to be done annually. Why would he instruct us and institute it to be an annual thing if he thought it was going to work the first time. You see the argument? That is, by the very nature of what God instituted and how he instituted it, can't we see that it was never God's intention and never God's purpose for that to be the basis upon which I could know that my sins are forgiven and that I am the recipient of mercy? Clearly, it was just to be a reminder of sins year after year after year. It was not intended to actually function as the basis upon which I would come to understand that I'm a recipient of mercy, that that's built into the very purpose of God himself because God would have created something that would end after however many times it took in order to be effectively that which attained mercy for me. But given that God never foresaw it attaining mercy for me, he instructed you to do it and do it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. He knew it wouldn't work. He knew that's not what he wanted. He knew that that was not the basis of forgiveness. Okay? So I'm done with paragraph 49 and 50 if you are. Any questions? Okay? Moving on then. Now, on the one hand, every priest would stand day after day and minister by offering the same offerings repeatedly, offerings that are never able to take away sins. Now, he's made every one of these points already in his argument, so he's not telling us anything new here. He's just summing up conclusions that he's already come to. By every priest, he means every Levitical priest under the Mosaic Covenant. He's not including Jesus in this. Your ordinary priest would take their stand in the temple day after day after day, And they would serve God in the role that God had given to them to do by offering up over and over and over again the same old offerings that they always offered up. They do that repeatedly. And he says, what are those offerings that they offered up repeatedly? Offerings that are never able to take away sins. And he's already argued that two paragraphs back. The blood of bulls and goats do not remove sins. But this one, and by this one he means Jesus, But this one, on the other hand, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sits at the right hand of God and is eagerly waiting for the time that remains until his enemies are placed as a footstool for his feet. Now, I don't know if you recognize the 
illusions there or the even the citations there. He sits at the right hand of God and he's waiting for his enemies to be placed as a footstool for his feet. Those are from Psalm 110. And remember this whole long argument started with Psalm 110. Mostly in Psalm 110, David has been focused on the part, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But it's in that same psalm, the psalm starts by saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the first line of Psalm 110. That's the messianic part of the psalm. What is he getting at there? You, this unknown person who's the Lord of David in Psalm 110, the one who's superior to David, the one who's a descendant of David, who's going to actually fulfill the promises that God made to David, this person who's going to fulfill those promises, what's the fulfillment of those promises going to look like? He's going to be the everlasting king of the eternal kingdom of God where all of God's enemies have been destroyed and there are no enemies of God any longer. There is no death. There is no evil. There is no unrighteousness. There is no injustice. There is no oppression any longer. Anything and everything that's inimical to God is going to be defeated and crushed. And who's going to reign over that kingdom? The son of David, the one who fulfills this promise. Well, Paul's identifying that one as Jesus. But this one, on the other hand, having offered up one sacrifice for sins for all time, unlike the priests under the Mosaic Covenant who just repeatedly day by day offer up one more animal offering, he offered up one sacrifice himself for all time, and now he sits at the right hand of God and is eagerly waiting for the time that remains until his enemies are placed as a footstool for his feet. So Jesus, in his capacity as the priest according to the order of Melchizedek, the ultimate and true high priest who had been appointed to that role from before the foundation of the world, he came into the world and he offered this propitiatory offering for us, appealing to God for mercy for us through his offering. And he just, he did that once. It's all he had to do because that one worked. That one actually provided the basis upon which God was going to grant us mercy, unlike any of the animal sacrifices that didn't and therefore didn't work. All he had to do is do it once because that worked. And then he was raised from the dead to the right hand of God. And by that, he means basically a, a metaphor or a picture of his role as the Messiah the very human embodiment of God's own sovereign rule over all of creation. Being at the right hand of God is the second most important person in the kingdom. If God is the first most important, Jesus is the second most important person in the kingdom. And why is he the second most important? Because he's the very embodiment of the rule of God himself for all of eternity in the kingdom of God. So he's qualified to that role. That's what it means that he's now seated at the right hand of God. And he's eagerly awaiting for the time that remains until his enemies are placed as a footstool for his feet. God's not done. God's purposes are not over. They're not complete. There are still the enemies of God are still abroad in the world. And the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of God until the enemies of God have been defeated. And so we still have a little bit of now that we have to go through 
before we reach the end of time. And at the end of time, Jesus is going to be given leave to go out then and destroy the enemies of God and establish the kingdom of God that we're all hoping for and waiting on. For by the one offering, he for all time made teleos those who are being sanctified. Now, there's two ways we can take that. First of all, what does he mean by teleos? We've seen this over and over and over again through his argument. I leave it untranslated because it's kind of a technical term here. Teleos is that state whereby I have reached a level of self-awareness where I know that I'm forgiven. I know that God is going to respond to me in mercy and bless me rather than destroy me. And to be teleos is to have attained that level because that's my telos. That's what I want. That's my desire. That's my purpose. If I took animals to the temple, that's why I took animals to the temple, is I wanted God to give me mercy. And I was trying to attain mercy from him by giving him animals. If I believe in Jesus, why do I believe in Jesus? My telos is that God will grant me mercy and grant me a place to be with him in the eternal kingdom of God. If I come to a point where I'm aware that that's where I stand, then I am teleos. Okay? For by the one offering, he for all time made teleos those who are being sanctified. Well, for all time, does he mean I could be teleos now, but give me 15 years and I, maybe it won't stick, you know, I won't be teleos there? No, I don't think so. The emphasis is here on his offering himself one time. I think the point that he's making is the one-time offering of Jesus is the basis for an individual human being attaining his teleos forever. Fifty years from now, people will still find Jesus and his role as their high priest, the basis upon which they will be teleos. Five thousand years from now, if the world lasts that long, people will be looking to Jesus as the basis upon which they attain teleosis because it was the eternal basis, like Catherine asked in her question, it was the eternal basis for any human being being granted mercy. And that's true throughout all time. Now, I think in the translation I gave you, do we now skip to 52? And it says, now, in fact, the Holy Spirit bears witness. Okay, cancel that. That's wrong. I think... Now, in fact, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. I'm going to totally retranslate that, and I think it belongs at the end of paragraph 51. And I would translate it, Now our sanctified inner consciousness bears witness to us concerning this. Remember, he said something very similar back in chapter 7. Back in chapter 7, when he first started talking about the temple and the furniture of the temple and how the temple was set up, And he talks about how those things, as it turns out, are just a parable. And in that context, he said, I translated it, the self-consciousness, the self-awareness, the self-understanding of the saint tells us that the animal sacrifices don't work. I think he's repeating that here, saying the same thing here. So the phrase that's translated Holy Spirit is rather, is not the Holy Spirit of God, it's the sanctified or Holy Spirit of a believer. The word is the same in Greek. So you have to make that judgment in each and every place you come across it. So I think the right judgment is the sanctified inner awareness or inner consciousness 
of the believer bears witness to us concerning this. Concerning what? The fact that by the one offering, he for all time made teleos those who are being sanctified. And in part, what bears witness to that? Our own inner awareness, our own inner consciousness. We recognize that, yeah, okay, I can have confidence that I will be met with mercy because of Jesus. That makes sense. I see. I see how that works. I see how that makes sense. I see how that can serve as the basis. And in the past, I've contrasted. Can you see how difficult it would be to believe that? That God is going to grant me eternal life because I gave him an animal? I burnt an offering on a fire for him? And somehow that's going to make up for all the treachery in my life, all the pride and arrogance and self-serving awfulness of me, all that somehow is going to be overlooked because I burned an animal on the fire for him? That's kind of implausible. That's kind of unbelievable. But it's not nearly so unbelievable that the one with respect to whom a voice came out of heaven on a number of occasions saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, who then went and underwent a heroic obedience to torture, to God's purposes in being tortured, and was raised from the dead, clearly vindicating him as somehow pleasing to God. To believe that that person has my back and is qualified to speak on my behalf and choose me for the kingdom of God and convince God to make that happen and allow that to happen, that's totally believable. And I think that's what he means by our own sanctified inner awareness, our own sanctified inner consciousness bears witness to us that that's true. It was his offering that was the basis of mercy. Okay, let's leave it there for today. We have a few minutes for some final questions, so. So could a sanctified person in the time before Jesus be teleos? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, okay, good question. No, no. In fact, he said so in his argument, didn't he? That these things did not bring, make you teleos. So I won't say they can't in rare circumstances, I suppose, like David in Psalm 40 is teleos, right? Because he's singing the praises of how God picked me up out of the pit of destruction and put my feet on solid ground. What he's describing, I think, is his coming to be teleos, to his own self-consciousness and his own awareness that, yes, God will meet him with mercy. And he kind of worked it out. I know it's not on this basis, but you've got some basis somewhere. So I think there were rare individuals who could probably attain that in kind of in anticipation, but you couldn't on the basis of what you were doing in the Mosaic Covenant. And I I think that's what's inadequate. That's what was weak about the Old Covenant. He calls it weak in chapter 8. That's what was weak about it, is it it didn't allow people to get to a point where they really knew that they stood, they were in good standing to receive God's mercy. And that's an unfortunate place to be in. Even if they were going to receive God's mercy, they didn't know it. They wouldn't know it. Yeah, they couldn't have the same confidence. Right. Because that just struck me sitting here listening and made me think about maybe that was why God was so much more active in history himself mm. because how else were these people going to have, you know, right. with prophets and how else were they going to have any sort of hope or confidence that mm. just yeah. not. No, good point. Yeah. Okay. 